Well, good morning, Emmaus. It is a real treat to be with you folks, and I just got to tell you, I always feel like I'm with family when I come to Emmaus, and uh, Rachel and Brooks have been spoiling me rotten over at their apartment, we've been having some good fellowship, and I really enjoyed hanging out here on campus all day yesterday, visiting with many of you, and, and at SMF last night, it was uh, just a real sweet time of fellowship, so thank you for making me feel welcome and at home. So um, I have a picture up here of my family just to, so I can maybe introduce them real briefly. If you guys can pop that up. <clears throat> but um, my, my wife and I uh, joined New Tribes Mission back in 1984. And um, since that time, we had four kids. And I am a second generation missionary. And now um, two of my kids, uh, our missionaries, so seven of our nine grandchildren live in Asia, and so we don't see them very often, but um, we, are, we feel very, very blessed with a nice, large family and, and uh, nine grandkids, but we do get to have two of them that live in the St. Louis area near us, but, um, but that's our gang, and uh, just wanted to introduce them to you and my beautiful wife, so... Um, we started out our ministry in Columbia, South America in 19, we flew to Columbia in December of 1986 and were there for 10 years. And my testimony that I want to share with you this morning, it's a very simple one, and, but as I was talking with, with Brooks about what to share with you guys during chapel, um, we you know, decided that maybe this would be, uh, would be appropriate as your theme of transformation this semester um, kind of rang a bell with me as I thought about how God used his word to bring healing to my life during, and my, my whole family's life during a very, very difficult uh, time for us. We thought we would grow old in the country of Columbia, South America, serving the Lord there as, as missionaries. We went, um, we were trained as linguists, church planners, uh, Bible translators, and uh, thought that that's what God would have us do. And um, as it turned out, after a year and a half there, uh, we were approached and asked to move to the school for missionary kids, where all the missionary kids uh, would attend school, because our missionaries live in real remote, uh, often difficult areas in the jungle. And so, um, not what we were planning on, but we went to the school, and they asked us to help start a high school for um, for these MKs. We had school up through the eighth grade, but we didn't have a school for high school uh, young people, and, and like when I was an MK there, I did all my schooling by correspondence. Sometimes it would take me three months to get an exam back. I would send it off, and, and they would send it back. It'd take me sometimes three months to find out what kind of a grade I got. So next time you feel critical of your professors, um, <laughs> professors, you can remind them of that, okay? So, um, but anyways, we ended up getting to be boarding home like dorm parents or boarding home parents, and had 22 high schoolers living in our home eight months out of the year. And uh, it was not what we had planned on doing when we went to Columbia as missionaries, but we absolutely loved it. It was kind of like being a youth pastor, but your youth group lives in your home eight <laughs> months out of the year. And we had our own small children. It was just, it was a real joy um, to have those young people in our home and be able to to pour into them. We learned a lot from them and a lot from their families because we were young parents. And so it was a really, really precious time for us. But 
We, we did that for 10 years, and um, towards the end of that time, um, it was one Sunday morning, we were getting ready for church. We, our school was located out in the middle of nowhere, um, kind of in the rainforest near the foot of the Andes Mountains, and I was getting in the shower to get cleaned up. Uh, we would have our, own, have our own church service, and some of us men would take turns teaching from God's Word and, and leading singing and whatnot, and... and you know, it was a special time Sunday mornings, but I am not a morning person, and so I, it just takes me a while to get going. I need my coffee, I need a shower, and, and then I'm, I'm ready to face the world, and I was in the shower, and all of a sudden, bam, 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 bam. I mean, my wife is banging on the bathroom door, and she's going, James, James, come out here quick, and I'm like, what? What's going on, you know? But I could tell by the urgency in her voice that something was wrong, something serious was wrong, and so... I um, threw on my bathrobe. I had this really bright bathrobe. All the, the high schoolers all called it Joseph's robe of many colors because it was <laughs> literally, I mean, psychedelic bright colors and everything. My wife made it for me. And um, it was, I, I, I think she didn't want me to get lost. You know, she'd be able to find me. This thing was really bright. I mean, neon bright. And so I threw this thing on. I'm soaking wet. I come out, I'm drain, dripping water all the way out, you know, into the living room. We had tile floors, kind of like this floor, so I didn't have to worry about water. But as soon as I came out of the door, I could see soldiers running past our house, up the road to other houses. Um, they, all had, they were all armed. They, they were all wearing these different camouflage uniforms, and, and the uniforms didn't match. And I could see they had rubber boots on, so immediately I knew, okay, these are not government soldiers. These these are rebels. These are insurgents, terrorists. In Spanish, we call them guerrilleros. So we often refer to them as guerrillas. So if you hear me say guerrilla, don't think of a black, hairy ape, okay? I mean, um, think terrorists. But um, one of them was standing at the door of our house, and at the, actually at the window, and our windows all had bars on them, and they, he was standing there with a, with a gun pointed through, and he was aiming at, at me as I came out, and he said, James, or he didn't say James, he didn't know my name, sorry about that. But he said, sir, come out, we're the police, come out right now. And I'm like, okay, you're not the police, obviously, but I'm going to do what you say because you have the gun and I don't. You know, I'm just in my bathrobe dripping water all over here. So I, I walk out, he immediately shoves the gun in my chest and starts yelling at me, where are your planes, where are your pilots? And so I tried to pretend like the, you know, dumb American who can't speak Spanish and just acted like I didn't know what he was saying, trying to give our pilots a chance to be able to escape. And um, after a few minutes of, of that back and forth and me pretending like I was an idiot and didn't know what he was saying, he gave up and said, come with me. And he got behind me and started shoving me out and took me out to this field um, in the middle of our school, we had about 120 people at, at our school, teachers, students. I think we had about 70 students. So all the rest of the people were, were staff and teachers and maintenance personnel and pilots and mechanics and things there at, at our school. And I'll never forget, as they marched me out to this field, I could see there was a little group of soldiers there, insurgents, and on the ground was a friend of mine. His name was Steve Welsh, and his hands were tied up behind his back. There was a rope 
around his wrist, it went up around his neck. And so he was holding his arms up like this and his neck like this. And if he moved his arms, it would choke, choke him. And so he was, he was kneeling there. And, and while he was kneeling and these soldiers were standing around to them, one of them was filming with a video camera. And another man was standing in front of him with a pistol uh, to Steve's forehead. And so they marched me up. And I remember thinking, wow, this is it. This is it. It's, it's going to end here. They're going to kill us, and they're going to make a, a video of it and a spectacle, and it'll be all over the news, and, and um, you know, this is how it's going to go down. And, and I remember looking at Steve and thinking, Steve's thinking the same thing and struggling and wondering what's going to happen and, and thinking that the end is near. Well, we stood there for a few tense moments. It seemed like an eternity, but um, after just a very brief period, I'm sure, um, this, this man holding the pistol to my friend's head, he turns to me and he says, do you speak Spanish? Okay, remember, I had been pretending like I couldn't speak Spanish. But at that point, I wanted to speak Spanish. I wanted to find out what in the world was going on. And by then, I figured our pilots had had a chance. If they were going to escape, they had already escaped. And so there was no sense, um, you know, being ignorant anymore. And so I was a little worried that the guard behind me who had, I had been <laughs> kind of, you know, not being forthright with uh, would hit me or get mad or something. But I told the guy, I said, yeah, I do speak Spanish. And so he, he turned to me and he said, um, we don't want to hurt anyone, um, but we're going to be taking you two men with us and kidnapping you. We're taking you with us. Um, that's why we're here. And so I got to tell you, you know, you never want to hear that you're going to be kidnapped, but at that point, it was actually a relief to me to hear him say, we're not going to kill you, we're going to take you with us, we're going to kidnap you two men. And so that was actually a relief, because um, I didn't think it was going to, you know, I thought life was going to end pretty quickly. But um, so he eventually lowered his gun, and he turned to me, and he said, we're going to send soldiers over to get clothing from your wife and any medicines you need. Um, if there's anything you need, tell us, because we're, we're going to ask her to get that. Now, this whole time, all of a sudden, it's dawned on me, oh, my poor wife. She's there at the house with all these teenagers, and actually, all the boys were gone that weekend. They had gone into town to have, like, this big slumber party at one of, their, one of the guys' house. And so the only high schoolers in our home were teenage girls. And my wife was there with our, our three, at that point we had three small children, three young children. She was seven months pregnant with our fourth, and um, she had these high school girls, and, and it just hit me. Oh, my poor wife, she's there all by herself. Having to, she's probably going nuts trying to protect the girls and keep our kids safe. And, and later I found out she was running around hiding our keys to our, our, our Toyota Land Cruiser and to my motorcycle. I had a... a, a bike to get in and out of town, a motorcycle to get in and out of town real quickly. And we had our radio, we had money, you know, her jewelry. She was like hiding everything, trying to, you know, as discreetly as possible, try to keep it from these guys. And in the midst of all that, one of the, one of the girls comes running to her and says, Diane, Diane, Molly's in the shower and there's a soldier going in. And she doesn't even know any of this is happening. And so my wife tells my eldest son, who was about nine at that time, take your siblings into the room, watch them, don't come out. Um, I'm already taken away, I'm gone. My wife 
hustles down with all seven months of her pregnancy and as fast as she can down the hallway to where the girls were in the bathroom, where this one young lady was in the bathroom. And, and as, as she runs into the bathroom, there's a soldier there walking towards the shower, getting ready to rip open the, the shower where this, this young girl named Molly was. And, and um, Diane jumps in front of the guy and says, you know, stop. And she holds the curtain and says, Molly, you need to get out of there. Molly's like, what do you mean? She says, here, just get your clothes on. Trust me, get out of there. She was clueless any of this was happening. And my, my wife said, you know, that guy could have done whatever he wanted, but he stopped. He backed up and just stood right outside the door while she, my wife was able to get uh, Molly her clothes. And, of course, you can imagine her amazement when she opened the curtain and saw, you know, soldiers out in the, in the hallway and everything, rebels, and because the teenagers knew good and well what, what these guys were. And so there were so many things that transpired that day that I don't have time to tell you that just amazing stories of God's faithfulness. My wife often says, who knows, maybe that soldier that was the one that went into that bathroom, maybe God handpicked him because he knew that he would not force himself on us. And he could have done whatever he wanted, but he didn't. Maybe God protected us by handpicking that soldier because he stood outside the door and no one else came in. Um, and there were all kinds of stories like that that I just don't have time to tell you, just amazing stories of God's faithfulness that day. But eventually, um, they forced everybody into this racquetball court that we had. It was an easy place to lock us all up. And they kept me outside because I was, um, they were using me to translate um, they had taken my friend Steve now, and he, they had loaded him into two of our vehicles that were stolen, uh, that they were taking with us. They had loaded a lot of our personal items from our homes that they thought were valuable that, and they wanted to take. They stole those and loaded them into the vehicles. There were about, at the school, there were about, we don't know for sure, but it looked like there was anywhere from 20 to 30 of these rebel soldiers there, all armed to the teeth. And... So um, finally, after about an hour, they're done. They've given all these propaganda speeches and things about how awful Americans are and this and that. And I'm standing outside this racquetball court, and my, everybody else is inside um, except for Steve, who was loaded up. And um, I look up, and all of a sudden the door pushes open, and my tiny little seven-month pregnant wife pushes the guard away from the door and just comes marching out right up to me. And I'm like, wow, you know? And um, she comes up to me. She says, when I realized that I may never see you again, she said, I thought, what are they going to do to me? You know, I'm going to go out and see my husband. And so she left our kids with other missionaries. And my wife wasn't crying or hysterical or anything. No one was. It was actually really um, amazing, the calm that, that everybody had. And we had trained for this type of thing. We had a contingency plan, and, and everybody was doing what we had gone over and what we had practiced and planned for. Um, but my wife came out, and we were standing there hugging. And, and I'll never forget, we're hugging, and she wasn't crying, but she was so emotional that she couldn't get any voice. Um, she, all she could do was whisper. She was voiceless, so she was whispering to me. So she's like real close to my ear whispering. And I remember she said, James, I don't know 
how this is going to turn out. I don't know how long it will take, but she says, just know that I love you and I will be waiting forever. So just know that I'm going to be waiting for you. And she's whispering that to me. And as she's saying this to me, you know, I'm looking and I see this, the pistol dude, he's watching. And he looks at us and he says, he, I hear him say to the soldiers, hey, um, is that his wife? And they're like, yeah, that's, that's, that's his wife. Because we had, she stood there talking to me and we were conversing with him a little bit with the other soldiers there. And um, just asked him what in the world they hope to, you know, to get. And they said, well, we're holding you for ransom. And I said, do you know anything about missionaries? You know? <laughs> you know and, and they said, oh, you're American. That's all that matters, you know. You guys all have money. I'm like, okay, good luck with that. But um, so this man looks and he says, well, if that's his wife, let him go and get somebody else. She's pregnant. They went into the racquetball court and came out with another friend of mine, a man by the name of Tim Van Dyke. And my kids called him Uncle Tim. He's about six foot eight, big tall guy. And he was my coworker. He, they were the boarding home, he was the boarding home dad to the middle schoolers. Uh, we had the high school and they had the middle school. Tim came out. Tim did not speak very much Spanish. And he came out and he goes, what's going on, James? And I said, Tim, because Diane's pregnant, they don't want to take me, and instead they've chosen to take you. And I turned to these guys and I said, you know, you don't understand, this man doesn't speak Spanish very well, he's got a bad back, um, I don't think you should take him. And they said, we don't care, he's, he'll, he'll be fine, we'll take him. And Tim turned to me and he said, James, don't worry about it, just ask him if I can have my Bible. And so I asked him and they said, no, 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 we'll get him a Bible, we'll, we have lots of Bibles, we'll get him a Bible. And I said, well, yeah, okay. You don't understand, he needs an English Bible. And they said, oh, we'll get him a Bible. We'll get him a Bible. And so one of our Colombian missionaries who was peeking his head out listening, um, one of our Colombian nationals who worked with us there, he heard all this and he said, I know where his Bible is, I'll go get it. And he took off running for, the, for Tim's house, which was about 100 yards away. I thought they might shoot him and took off running, but they let him go and he ran. And they took Tim, marched him down, left me and my wife standing there and they marched Tim off loaded him into the Jeep along with Steve, who was already in the Jeep, and they were piled all over this vehicle and, and, and all this, you know, these two vehicles were just like sagging with the weight. There were guys sitting on the roof, sitting on the hood, hanging on the back. They start driving down the road, and I saw Alberto, who, was, who had just come out of Steve's, or Tim's house, come running with the Bible, and I saw him reach up and Tim's hand come out of the Jeep and take his Bible. And So Tim had gotten his Bible, and I, I was happy about that, but I remember standing there just feeling like, wow, what just happened? You know, I'm here with my family, and now Tim and Steve are gone. And Tim's family didn't even know he'd been taken. I had to go in and tell everybody what had happened, including his family. But since I was kind of the team leader there at our school and in charge of security, I immediately I had to start thinking about getting evacu evacuating people, getting the two families whose husbands have been taken and having them evacuated and flown out. And um, later on that day, the military showed up. My dad was in town and he was on the radio. He knew everything that was happening. Um, and he was calling the military and so they, they were coming and we knew that you know, help was coming. But that began a, 
a year and a half long process of moving. We, we, we left the school evacuated. We set up school in town where we thought it'd be safe. A month later, we found out that they were still trying to kidnap more of our people. We had to make the tough decision to, to pull all of our people out of there and move them to the capital city of Bogota. Most of the people we, we required to leave the country, and a few of us stayed behind. During this whole time, um, Tim and Steve were being held, and we would get messages that they were alive, we'd get proof of life. The rebels were asking for money. Um, we had um, you know, some of our mission men that were, were trying to work about their release through negotiations without paying ransom, because our policy is not to pay ransom. As soon as you pay ransom, your missionaries all over the world become targets, because we work in remote rural areas. We have no way of protecting our people. So a year and a half went by, and we just, I remember thinking, I just know God's going to work a miracle, and we're going to, Tim and Steve are going to come back into town, and we're going to hear all these stories about how God used these two men and, uh, in the lives of these rebels. But one, um, one evening there in, in Bogota, my wife and I were getting ready to listen to the news, and the phone rang. I picked it up, and yeah, hello, and it was one of our field leaders, and he said, James, I some really bad news. And I said, what? He said, um, Tim and Steve have been killed. They've been murdered. Um, Danny went down. He identified the bodies. It's them. They're gone. And I just, I, I remember thinking, no, no, that can't be. They're supposed to be released, you know? We've been hearing good reports. And and I remember sitting down on the bed, and my wife's like, what? What's going on? And I told her, and we were both just like in shock, like, no, that can't be. And then all of a sudden on the television screen, the news comes on right there on the screen in front of us, laid out on stainless steel tables in a morgue are our two friends, right on the screen in front of us. We can see them. You can see the, 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 the gunshot wounds in their body. It was them. And we just sat on the bed, and I remember just weeping and crying and just this horrible mixture of emotions. I mean, on the one hand, we looked at each other, and it's like, we're still together. That should have been me, and feeling such relief, but then feeling this horrific grief and, and guilt that I am still alive, but because I'm still alive, Tim is dead, and his family and his four kids no longer have their father or husband. And just that horrible battle and struggle going on in my heart. And, you know, I really struggle. I wish I could tell you that as a missionary, I had a godly response to that. I didn't. I began to get bitter and angry. I began to question God. How could, how could the God of, of Tim and Steve and the God of all of us allow something like this to happen to two of his servants? You know, how could he do that? And God in his sovereignty had, had prearranged for me to preach in, a, in a, an American-speaking church there in Bogota. It's called Bogota Baptist Chapel. It was full of American business people, and um, our kids went to Awana there and everything, and we, we were attending that because we were pretty beat up as a family, and it was just a neat opportunity for, for them to go to an English-speaking church and, and do, a, you know, Awana and stuff. And they'd asked me to preach, and I'd been asking for like a year for an opportunity, and, and finally it happened. Well, it happened the Sunday after I find out my two friends had been killed. But God in his sovereignty knew that that is exactly what I needed because 
It forced me to open God's Word. I was so angry, I didn't want to read God's Word. I didn't want to open God's Word and, and try to experience His comfort and healing. I was, I was bitter and angry. And so, but I had to, because I was supposed to preach. And so I opened God's Word, and I wish I could tell you that he just share, showed me all these amazing things that I had never seen before, but you know, he kept bringing scriptures that I knew so well and just made them come to life for me. Verses like John 3.16 that says, for God so loved, so loved the world. Remember, I was struggling with my understanding of God's love, but God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And here I'm thinking, I have three sons. I can't imagine giving one of them to die in somebody's place. And then the verse that broke my heart is the one that Josh read, John 15, 13. There were many verses I read, but we don't have time for me to share all of them with you. But John 15, 13 was the one that just, just broke my spirit, got me on my knees to ask God for forgiveness. That No greater love has any man than this that he lays down his life for a friend. And I immediately thought, in a sense, Tim died for me. But what struck me was, but even more importantly than that, the Lord Jesus Christ did that for all of us. He gave his life. Who am I to question that kind of love? What more can God do to show his love? That is the ultimate expression of love. John 15, 13 says that. And right there, I said, God, forgive me for not believing you, for not trusting you, for not, for losing faith in the fact that you love us unconditionally, and that will never change. And, you know, because without an understanding of that, it is hard to really put Romans 8, 28 to practice and, and trust that verse, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. I knew that in my head. I was having a hard time believing that because I was wrestling with God's love for me. But that day, reading that verse and just, just coming to grips with that really broke my heart. And, you know, from that, that was a turning point, a transformational turning point for me and my family. And we've been through some things much harder than that kidnapping since that day um, in, in the years since then. That happened in 1996 is when they were killed. But um, every time we've faced hardship since that time, we have said to the Lord, Lord, we by faith are going to believe that this hard thing, that you're going to use it for good in our lives and the lives of others. But, and we don't understand right now why it's happening, but by faith we're going to trust you because we know that you love us. We don't doubt that. You have demonstrated that in the perfect way. And so we want to get that straight with you right now, God. We're struggling with understanding how, why this is happening to us. We don't see the good in it, but we know you love us, so by faith, we are going to trust that somehow you're going to use this for good in our life. And I want to share that with you guys this morning. It's just a simple testimony um, and a, a simple little message, but all of us experience heartache. If you haven't experienced something difficult, really heart-wrenching, you will, okay? Because that's part of life here on earth in this fallen state that we live in. And it's my hope that you will remember some of these simple little things that I've shared with you and maybe um, be able to grasp a hold of those truths like my family and I did to find comfort and peace um, as you face those difficult difficulties. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you. Thank you for loving us unconditionally. That last song we sang, Lord, just touched my heart that you on the cross there gave everything for us and shed, shared your love with us through your blood right there on the cross. God, no greater expression of love could ever be offered. You've done that. Lord, I pray we never doubt your love for us. Thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for Jesus.